Hi, my name is Lou Eisen. I'm boxing writer and historian. And today we're lucky to have on the show, it's a privilege, Mr. Murray Gregg, who is Canada's Canada's best ever sports writer, but also Canada's premier boxing writer and historian ever. And if you want to know anything about boxing, you speak to him. Um, I just wanted to let you know uh, that uh, he's written many books. So I, it, I, we would be here for a couple hours if, if I was to name all of them. By the way, I'm, I keep getting pinged as I'm speaking because the Jays choked tonight and lost. Uh, Murray is the author of six books for Canadian and US publishers. And of course, and I have them. So he's written Chevalo, A Fighter's Life. This is a must have for any Canadian sports fan, boxing fan and Canadian. And he's also written my Bible, Going the Distance, which is the premier history the best ever written about the history of Canada's greatest fighters, of all of Canada's fighters. Um, he's also published The Complete Idiot's Guide, and I am a complete idiot, so that was for me, to the biggest deals in hockey history, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Boomer TV, Penguin Books, New York, 1999-2000, Trail on Ice, The Century of Hockey, that's from Trail BC, and the home of champions, and also Big Bucks and Blue Pucks, from Hall to Gretzky and Anecdotal History, of the late great World Hockey Association. I went to many games there. And author of more, way more than 500 byline features for every North American and Asian periodical you, you know of, including the Hockey News, TV Guide, Ring Magazine, Sports Collectors Digest, the Hockey Research Journal, Asia Sports Review. Anyone, anywhere wanting to find out something about hockey and the history going back 150 years and boxing going back more than that, Murray Gregg's the guy you're going to call because he's got it all. Uh, he worked for the China Daily, 203 to 205, and also 212 to 220. He was the Alberta writer in residence in 208, and is also part of an initiative jointly administered by the Library Association of Alberta and the Alberta Writers Guild. And he was contracted by the Northern Light System to serve as a writer in residence for 12 um, Northeast Alberta communities. And he's also written for Sun Media. Uh, 1984 to 202, he was Canada and the world's premier boxing writer. 205 to 212, he was the senior copy editor and staff writer, Edmonton Sun. Um, and he, he covered pro and amateur boxing, hockey and auto racing. He also wrote nationally for syndicated uh, daily TV columns and for syndicated weekly boxing columns. He is simply, when it, he's the Muhammad Ali of Canadian box writing, boxing writing and hockey writing. There isn't anyone better than him. He's the gold standard against which everyone else is measured. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Murray Gregg. Wow. <laughs> My mom couldn't have done a better job. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably thinking, wait a minute, I didn't know I yeah. wrote for all these places. I think they owe me money still. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a privilege and a pleasure to have you on. We had a great talk last night and i could talk to you and pick your brain for the next 30 years um about boxing i i love your books going to distance uh should be required reading for everyone from grade one on because these are true heroes of the of our nation they help build the nation well i you know i wrote that in uh, 96 and the idea i had the idea of sort of running around my mind for a few years but it always bothered me that uh you know everybody knows our our sports heroes are all hockey players right 
and with few exceptions, you know, we got Steve Nash in basketball. We got a couple of ball players. We got, you know, Joe Villeneuve. But, uh, you know, you look at guys like George Dixon and Sam Lankford and Lou Briard and George LeBlanc, uh, all these guys that, you know, had marvelous, marvelous ring careers and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, true pioneers of the sport. I mean, George Dixon basically invented shadow boxing. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he invented the speed bag. Yeah. He, was the, he was the most famous black man on the planet and the first black champion in, in, in boxing history. But nobody knows about him, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, it, you know, it, it always, it always kind of uh, bothered me that, you know, this stuff was lost to history. So when I was doing going the distance, it was uh, it was a pleasure to go back and and uh, and research research these guys and and try and try and uh, weave weave a narrative that uh, would you know would bring their exploits back to uh, back to life for a lot of Canadian most Canadians that had never heard of them. You you went even farther than that. I I, I said I sent something to Canada Post. You did it long before I did it, much more eloquently. You you sent a file on George Dixon. Another fighter is saying that the, this is part of our Canadian heritage. They helped build this nation, and there there needs to be recognition of this. You know, this should be on stamps. Absolutely. You know, and, and we, you know, we we, uh, you know, as Canadians, we have a we have a, we we have a national inferiority complex to begin with. Um, you know, and 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 we just for whatever reason, there's resistance to recognizing guys that uh, and, and men and women that that maybe weren't you know uh mainstream famous as it were uh and and whose exploits are lost at time but when i when i did that i i i wrote a proposal i went through my mp years ago uh to get in touch with the officials of canada post and i proposed that they do a six stamp feature on on canadian fighters and uh you know, it was received, uh, you know, very positively. Uh, I had some very positive feedback. I did profiles on on several fighters that they would consider, you know, that I hope they would consider. But, uh, you know, I, we went back and forth for about six months, and they seemed really enthusiastic about it. And then uh, that was it. They dropped it. <laughs> no explanation, no no rhyme or reason, uh, you know. That's not that's not forgivable, and it's not like you're coming out of the ether. You're a world-renowned boxing writer, you know. So people from all over the world and other Canadians come to you to find out about these people. You know what you're talking about. It's it's inconceivable that they, you know, you wrote it out for them. You did their job. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's interesting. You should bring that up because when Going the Distance came out, uh, it, you know, it, it did very well. But but the the vast majority. Of the of the letters and the and the feedback that I got was from readers in the U.S. and Europe. You know, wow. uh, I mean, I I got you know I got I got some from Canada, but but the overwhelming majority was from the U.S. and and Europe and Australia. You know, it's it's interesting you say that. I was working on a book about George Dixon, and Jason Winders beat me to it. And a friend of mine in England, Tony G, is a bare knuckle boxing writer and historian, you know, Tony. And so he sent me articles about Dixon that were written in Australia and New Zealand and people, I mean, you know, but Canadians should know that he was a world renowned figure. 
This was a black man who was loved everywhere and respected for his talent. Exactly. He was, he would, you know, he would, and at that time, particularly in England, uh, there were, you know, there was still, uh, you know, there was still a very rigidly enforced social strata as far as, you know, the races were. But in England, he was treated like royalty. In Australia, he was treated like royalty. New Zealand, he was treated like royalty. In the U.S., he, you know, he was mobbed everywhere he went, you know, in a good way. But uh, Canadians, eh, you know, nothing. It's unbelievable. When I was doing research on him seven or eight years ago, I called someone in Nova Scotia in their archives, and and the person said, why would there be any info on him? No black people have done anything in Nova Scotia of any worth. <laughs> and I thought, I wish I'd taped that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, yeah. and I mean, the same goes for Sam Langford, who's the greatest fighter to never win a world title. Exactly, exactly. And yet you, you mentioned Sam Langford to, you know, a thousand Canadians and 999 are, are going to go, who? <laughs> and, you know, interestingly, he would have beaten Ketchell again had Ketchell not been murdered. Ketchell, I wanted to talk to you about this. So he fights Ketchell, and Ketchell agrees to fight him again. That's right. And Ketchell, and I was reading a, a friend of yours, a friend of mine, Arnie Lang's book on the Dixon fight with Terry McGovern. Right. And how's, how, how much of an outlier is, how odd is it that McGovern and Ketchell weren't bigots? I mean, so many fighters are racist then, but these two guys, they, they like they had no problem with each they other. They had no problem with them. I, I think, I think, number one, I think that that was just in them. And number two, they were very savvy businessmen, both of them. And they both knew that, you know, this was a meal ticket. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Ketchell, Ketchell's whole career was, 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 was built around controversial fights that, that, you know, he, you know, he would, he, he would either, look just good enough to win and get a rematch immediately for for more dollars or he'd fight he'd fight black fighters that nobody else wanted to touch because he knew that it was a you know a sure way to get not only headlines but a lot more bucks right and langford if you don't you know if ketchell hadn't died langford gets that title absolutely absolutely and you know the, the whole the whole the whole thing was that uh you know, Langford, I mean, Jack Johnson wanted nothing to do with Langford. I mean, they did fight once long before, but but uh, Johnson was very adamant that, you know, he wanted nothing to do with Langford. And that reputation went all the way up to Jack Dempsey. I mean, Jack Dempsey wrote in his own autobiography, the one guy that he feared that, that he flat out wouldn't fight was Sam Langford. Yeah, that's a great point. Because, I, I mean, I, I mentioned this to... Randy Robertson, you know, and so many other writers, you know them all. Um, it must drive you crazy when you see re re revisionist history online or in some articles. Yeah. And yeah. you think, you know, <laughs> even with George Cheval, you think, I was there at that fight. So exactly, exactly. Yes. But it's, you know, but that's, you know, that's that's symptomatic of of what's what's happening across all areas of research and all and, and writing in general. Uh, nowadays, if if somebody can't go on Google or go on the internet and find an answer on Wikipedia in 15 seconds, you know they, they just dismiss it. Oh, it didn't happen. It's not on Wikipedia. You know, or it's, it's right. And 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 you know the the days of the days of of writers going back like you have and and I have and 
a lot of these other guys have. You know, we you go back to the original sources, and to me, you know, and I'm sure you'll agree, you know, the greatest single source for a researcher, especially in sports research, is the daily newspapers, the daily press, that's because it. that that's as it happened, and that's the that's the single best record because it's immediate, it's immediate. Um, you know, I've done I've done a lot of research, and and I'm just working on a book right now about the uh, McCarty Pelkey fight in in Calgary for the World White Heavyweight Championship in 1913. Yeah, um, but again, uh, it, you know, the records of that are totally lost except for the original newspaper accounts, and uh, that to me is a priceless source. But uh, sadly, as you know. As the newspaper industry continues to die a long, slow death, yeah. um, you know th those resources are going to be gone forever. So thank you know I, I thank heaven that we've still got uh, we've still got you know historical uh, research being done on the internet for by people that are dedicated enough to go back and look at the original sources instead of just you know this piecemeal selection of you know the flavor of the week and 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 what can we put to what can we put together that makes sense. That uh, you know is going to be good enough. It, it's heartbreaking because newspapers brought down Richard Nixon and other corrupt governments. They're the ones that keep people honest in sports exactly. and everywhere. Yep. And without them, we lose our biggest policemen. That's right. And now, I mean, what you know, what passes for journalism today is is really just regurgitation. It's mm. you know, retweet, 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 retweet. Yeah. You know, who cares? <laughs> who cares about some? You know, anonymous tweeter or Twitter guy that's, that 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 wants to react to a story. I mean, the days of of having people uh, on site on the scene that actually probe and investigate and dig and do the, the do the grunt work they're 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 sadly gone. But back in the day, back in the day, in boxing, as you well know, was the number one the number one attraction in in newspapers for half a century. Yes. You know, front page stories all the time, I but uh, mm -hmm. but it, it, you know it's 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 a sad commentary on our I think on our society in general that uh, the days of probing and digging and investigating are you know are, are gone. Yeah, they don't cover newspapers, especially mm -hmm. in Toronto. Don't cover boxing oh, anymore. No. And yeah. the Sun, which you work for, was the only one in the whole country. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Steve Buffery here, your friend, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. you were the only two. Yeah. You were yeah. one of him and you were the only guys. Yeah, pretty much. And, and it's uh you know, and I you know, I remember I remember back in the day, I mean, you look, you know, nineteen eighty six when Willie DeWitt and Ken Lacusa sold out Northlands Coliseum in Edmonton for the Canadian title fight. I mean, fifteen thousand people. Uh, you know, that was unheard of at the time. And and there was there was well over 200, 200 requests for media credentials. Wow! And yet, and yet, two years later, two years later, when uh, Dewitt finally, you know, called it a, a day on his career uh, with his final fight against Henry Tillman, the uh, the Olympic rematch fight, there was uh, there was me, Buffery, and I think two other guys. <laughs> That's sad. Yeah, yeah. That, that shouldn't happen. You know what I think is wonderful about you doing the Arthur Pelkey, Luther McCarty book. It's it's a great story, it, but you're the only one who can write it. Thank you're, you. You're the only one of the talent and the skill, but also the knowledge, and not only of what it meant to boxing, what it meant to the province of Alberta, and what it meant to Canada, and 
to the boxing community around the world at that time. Well, absolutely, because it, you know it was it was a benchmark uh, event because it you know the fact that the fact that uh, you know McCarty was killed in the you know in the, in the first minute of the first round, um, you know opened up a whole new level of debate on whether you know prize fighting should be altogether banned in Canada. It was in, in Alberta for several years, uh, and 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 what it what it meant to society to to have this kind of spectacle, and uh, you know it, it 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 its ramifications went far beyond you know that that May twenty fourth weekend in nineteen thirteen, uh, you know, uh, and and the racial overtones. Um, you know, for, you know, having a white heavyweight championship that continued right up until basically, you know, the sixties, you know, when, right. when were, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I mean, as, as recently as 1985, I think it was, uh, when you had, uh, Dwayne Bobbick and, and Kali Kanitsa and South Africa being, having it billed as the world white heavyweight championship. Yeah. So. You know, here's something I wanted to ask you. So at, at, at the International Boxing Hall of Fame, and you've been there a million times, and I was there with, I was lucky enough to be there with you and George. Right. And, and uh, I, I, I got in a bit of, kind of, I should say trouble, but I was sitting around for a group of people, these other writers and historians, and they mentioned, we're talking about the, the lineage, and they said, well, you know, starts of John Sultan. And I said, I don't consider him, I consider him to be the first white heavyweight champion because he didn't fight George yeah. Daughtry. That's right. And he didn't fight Peter Jackson. So how can you say he was the best heavyweight in the world? Exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, but that <laughs> that's part and parcel with, with, uh, with, with the whole idea that, uh, you know, uh, it, you couldn't be a true world champion unless you were a white guy. <laughs> and, and with, in Sullivan's case, I mean, that's, that was the start of the quote-unquote modern era of the heavyweight championship. But it goes back 200 years before that. Yeah. Guys like Tom Mullion and, and, yeah. and, you know, and Jackson and, and, and these guys. And, and, but they're, again, they're, they're basically lost to history. You yeah, I've, I've read books on Molyneux. And, and also um, uh, I can see in his face. The, the guy that trained them, the other black fighter. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it, you read about it and it's just heartbreaking, you know, what, what they what they go through and how Molyneux, you know, is cheated, at, at, you know, because, I mean, yeah. you know, this crib yeah. gets knocked down yeah. and everyone's saying, hey, he bit him, he had a foul. And they give them, they're arguing for 30 minutes, at which yeah. point they go, oh, okay, well, yeah. he's awake yeah. now anyways. Let's just Yeah, talk. exactly, exactly. And I then, know you know, and then you go, you know, you go, you know, during during Jack Johnson's reign after he after he defeated Tommy Burns. And, and Johnson actually kind of pulled a reverse uh, color line. Right. He, you know, he, he wouldn't fight any of the, he wouldn't fight any fellow black fighters because... No. You know, you, you look at a guy like Joe Jeanette. Yeah. Had to, fight, had to fight Langford 18 times, 18 times, you know. Uh, and Joe Jeanette in any other era would have been a heavyweight champion of the world. Yeah. You know, as, as Langford would have. You know? And, I mean, you look at Lang Langford beat Joe Gans. Langford was trained by George Budge Byers. And 
Tommy Ryan, as you know, wouldn't fight him. That's right. Yeah. And everyone yeah. said, well, wait a minute. You can't call Ryan a racist. He fought black fighters. He didn't fight elite black fighters like George Byers. Yeah. Yeah. And Byers yeah. and Godfrey are two success stories. This is something that Canadians need to know. I mean, Godfrey retired for a lot of money and his family grew it because they wouldn't sell the land that he bought. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Canadians have no clue. Well, it's just, you know, I was talking to a fellow the other day and uh, we were talking about Jack Johnson and and he said, uh, it's, it's strange that, uh, you know, Johnson uh, didn't fight any Canadians. I said, well, there was a guy named Sandy Ferguson from from uh, Nova Scotia who fought Johnson seven times, wow. seven times and and uh, got two draws with him. Um, but 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 he was one of he was one of the he was one of the white go-to opponents for Jack, uh, who who had to stay busy. Um, but he but Jen, but Ferguson had you know a pretty a pretty decent career. But again, it's it's just been lost to history because uh, nobody knows about it. Nobody nobody cares about it, even in Nova Scotia. No, and and you know Johnson is, is such an interesting character. I mean, he he definitely. Joe Woodman's Langford's manager said years later that he definitely beat Langford. He said Langford. Yeah. I wrote stuff of the opposite just to save Sam's confidence. But he said this was Sam's 18th or 20th pro fight, and this was like the 85th fight yeah. for Johnson. But yeah. he could see how well, as you said, Langford became. But didn't Johnson agree with the National Sporting Club that if he beat Burns? He fights Langford there, and he That's broke right. the contract. That's right. That's right. That's right. And he ended up he ended up sailing when he left Australia. They sailed to they made a stop in Honolulu, and then went to Victoria. Mm -hmm. and Victoria, he's the new he's the new heavyweight champion of the world. And he and his entourage get off the boat in Victoria, go to the Empress Hotel, which is you know still you know the queen of hotels in Victoria, right on the right in the inner harbor. And uh, they wouldn't give him a room. They, they told him his wife was free to stay there because she was white. But him and the sparring partners, everybody else, had to find other accommodation. And the same thing happened two nights later in Vancouver. So wow. he ended up he ended up making, you know, in some in some sources it's called a title defense, and others it's called a a six round exhibition. But he ended up in Vancouver uh, just three months after beating Burns. He, he made his first appearance as champion in the ring against uh, Victor McLaughlin, who was, who was uh, an Irish guy from from Spokane, Washington, who had, who had worked as a police officer in Winnipeg, moved down to Spokane to do some boxing, came back up to Vancouver, fought Johnson, got absolutely beaten to a pulp, but, but realized that had the good sense to realize his limitations became a movie actor down in Hollywood and ended up winning an Academy Award for right. uh, The Intruder. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the question I meant to ask you before. I want to ask you before I forget. So Tommy Burns had a wife named Jewel. And I read opposite thing, different things, excuse me. So I asked Adam Pollock, who wrote a book on him, right. and other yeah. authors. I said, I heard Jewel was the sister of a black sparring partner. I heard Jewel was black, and Adam said, we don't know. He said there's so many different reports. Yeah, that's true. It's There's been, I mean, that's that's been uh, kicked around for a lot of years. Uh, and Burns, 
Burns was Burns always avoided it. He he never, he, you know, he never talked about it one way or the other. Right. But there's there's uh, there's a lot of evidence to to indicate that yeah, his he, she was uh, she was uh, part black. Yeah, you know, I think Burns was ahead of his time in the sense that people were outraged that he asked for thirty grand to fight Johnson, but he said he's the best one. If That's I right. take that risk, I should get the most money. Exactly. Exactly. And he was, you know, people forget that Tommy was always self-managed. Yeah. You know, he, he negotiated all his own deals. He, you know, he signed his own sparring partners. He took care of all his arrangements. And he was, he was, he was a, a brilliant businessman. And, uh, you know, he knew, he knew going in, I mean, Johnson had chased him all around the world. But again, uh, Burns was the first legitimate, legitimate world champion because he beat the best from everybody else. He beat the American champion, he beat the British champion, the French champion, South African champion, the Australian champion. And and Johnson was on his tail the whole time. And Tommy finally thought, well, you know, let's get it on. But if we're gonna, I, I gotta get the, the lion's share of the, of the dough. Right, well, it would still goes on today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I asked, sorry, I asked Bird Sugar, I said, people always demean Tommy Burns and he said, they didn't during his time. They only did after he fought Johnson. He said these were bigots who spread lies about him. That's right. He wasn't a good fighter. He said Burns was actually a great fighter. So he said people compare him and Willard. But he said, he said I don't think Willard would have gone two rounds with Tommy Burns, despite the height difference. I think Burns would have destroyed him yeah. as bad as Dempsey. He said, but because he had the gall to say to these racist former champions, I'm going to give this man a chance. They were like, well, mm -hmm. the media never going to attack him. Exactly, exactly. And you look at <laughs> you look at a guy like Jack London, you know, the famous oh, yeah. novelist, you know, uh, White Fang and Call of the Wild. Uh, he was the correspondent for the New York Herald at ringside in Rushcutters Bay when when Johnson and Burns fought. And uh, you know, you read you read his account of the fight, and it's like. Uh, you know what were you watching? <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, you know how this pipsqueak from Canada had no chance at all and was, you know, was beaten to a, you know, a, you know, a, a pile of mush by the giant Ethiopian. You know, and in 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 fact, if you if you watch the film, I mean Burns, yeah, he he lost the fight, but he got in his licks and mm -hmm. and he was still on his feet when it ended, and and you know he. He never, because of because of the racism and because of the reaction, uh, you know, of white people to the fact that, like you mentioned, he you know he he stood up and said, no, this guy deserves a chance. People never forgave him for that, and for that's the rest exactly. of the, for the rest of his life. Yeah, you know? that's what exactly what Bert Sugar said. Yeah, and you know, and you mentioned this to me at the Hall of Fame years ago, but yeah, that they still dislike him because of it, and it, it it's. It's, it's revisionist history. Exactly. And that, and now, now of course, it, you know, and, and it gains legs, you know, through the decades. So now you bring up the name Tommy Burns. Oh, he was a bum. You know, he was just a little guy. He had no business being champion, which is, you know, totally wrong. Yeah. Because he beat everybody. He yeah. beat everybody. Chris Dundee told me one time, he said, you've heard us before, son, but it implies. It's not the size of the dog in the fight the size of the fight in the dog. Exactly. And he said, exactly. Tommy Burns at that time was the toughest man on the face of the mm -hmm, earth. Mm -hmm, and he mm -hmm. would have taken on 
anyone, anytime. And he exactly. did. He did. He did. And he did. Yeah. And yep. he was smart. He went to Johnson's body. That's what you do with a taller guy. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, you know, he was, he was, uh, beside the fact that, you know, he was, like I said, he was the first true world champion and that he, you know, he, he left North America and, and went to Europe, went to Australia, fought everybody, you know, every, everybody that, 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 that came calling. Um, he was an innovative fighter. He, he, for a little guy, he had unusually long arms, but, but for a little guy, he, you know, he, he, he mastered the art of, of, of pivoting to get maximum, maximum leverage on his punches. And if you watch the films of him, I mean, he, he you know, he was a real slick puncher, a real slick, especially like you said, to the body. And that was the only chance he had against Johnson. And uh, early mean, on, early on in the fight, I mean, he, you know, he got he he more than he more than held his own. Yes, and what I love about Burns and the Bill Squires fight and other fights that you've seen a million times is when the bell rings, he's circling, he's watching what the guy's going to do. Exactly. He's yeah. letting the guy throw punches, yeah. and he's going okay. Yeah. So he's going to lunge. He's going to do this, and then he yeah. moves in and takes yeah. the guy out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a very cerebral fighter. Yeah. 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 yeah a, a great man and and once again you know other than the book by mr mccaffrey mm -hmm. uh, who i've been trying to contact for years and and the stuff you've written you know he'd be lost to the ages that's right and you know it's 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 kind of sad i mean you know the story but he was buried you know he died in vancouver broke. Uh, yeah yeah broke and and uh he was buried in an unmarked grave and it wasn't until years later that that uh cycle like, taylor and some some other hockey players and lacrosse players that tommy had been friends with got together and 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 got a nice headstone and you can go today to ocean view cemetery in burnaby bc and it's you know it it's very simple but it's 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 striking and it's uh it's sad that you know uh there's not more recognition of that should be a Tommy Burns day. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we yeah. have Robbie Burns. Yeah. Exactly. Someone Tommy Burns. Yeah. 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 This was a great man. Cyclone Taylor had an interesting comment. He, he they asked him about the racist things he said to Johnson. He held up his hand. He said he got caught up in the hoopla. But yeah. if you knew Tommy, he wasn't like that. And I saw That's him right. in I saw him in a mixed company. He yeah. said, I saw him with black people and white yeah. people. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. like that. That's right. Yeah. He just got caught up in what sure. was going on at yeah. that time yeah. in Australia. Yeah. And he was, you know, he was like, like we mentioned before, he was a good businessman too. He knew what, you know, he knew what buttons to push to sell more tickets, you know, get more hype. He also was the only one that ever apologized to Johnson for Actually, some stuff like absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and Johnson was really taken by that. Mm -hmm. And Johnson himself said he was a great fighter. He did, yes, on more than one occasion. Yeah, so, yeah. You, you, you know, if Jack Johnson, the greatest defensive fighter who ever says that, I mean, who else are you going to believe? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, exactly. so uh, absolutely. One of the other things I wanted to, I mean, there's, you know, I could name a million fighters that you, you, you know, and <laughs> we could go off for a year. But I love the George Chevallo book. It, it was very evocative. Thank but you. it was also touching. I was extremely sad when it ended. I didn't want it to end. <laughs> and uh, it, there are times when I laughed out loud, like like with uh, um, 
uh, Cleveland Williams talking about getting punched in the balls. <laughs> and and, and it, that was hysterical in the men's yeah. room. But yeah. also times, you know, talking about George's family, that where I was really, really crying. It was just, he, he's such an inescapably Canadian figure and so much a part of the history of our country. It was like he was pulled directly from the Canadian shield. Exactly, exactly. He, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think other than maybe Gordie Howe, I don't think there's another Canadian athlete that comes close to representing the true spirit of Canada and the resilience and the determination, uh, you know, you know, on a national level than, than George does. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you in, in 20, 2017, when I was in, uh, when I was working in China, uh, me and my girlfriend decided to take a little holiday to North Korea. <laughs> and uh, wow. it's a, it's a complicated process to get a visa uh, for, for a Canadian to, to go to North Korea and you have to leave from China, but I was already living in China. Um, so when we made the application, hers was approved right away because she's a Chinese citizen. But for me, it took several months. And one of the, one of the, one of the hangups for, for applying for a visa is that you have to tell them uh, who you're working for in China, what your employer is. But they don't allow journalists in unless they're invited. So to get around that, I was working for China Daily, so we couldn't very well tell them that I you know, was a journalist. So uh, my girlfriend said, well, you know, we'll write, we'll put on the application that you're an author, you know, for Canadian and American publishers. You write books. And we'll see if that is. So sure enough, we fired it in and they came back and said, yeah, well, we'll, we'll approve the visa. But when you get to Pyongyang, you're going to have to show us a book with Mr. Greg's name on it. So we know he's a real author. <laughs> so uh, the Chevalo book had only come out a few months before that. And they, the publisher was good enough to send a dozen copies to me in Beijing. So I thought, well, I'll just take one of those. So, so we get to Pyongyang International Airport. And they only call it that because there's a flight from Vladivostok every day and a flight from Beijing every day. Other than that, it's a it's an ultra modern 21st century spectacular looking airport that's totally empty. So we're standing in line at customs, and the, all of a sudden, three guys in uniform come up, and I'm the only white guy in this group of Chinese tourists, um, and they they're looking for the author, right? So. Um, my girlfriend tells them that, you know, we've got the book and they whisk us into this little office. And obviously they don't speak English or read English, but uh, they speak Chinese. So they ask my girlfriend for the book. She hands it to them. And there's three guys. One of them's, you know, old like us. And the other two are, are you know, fairly young guys, but they're all in, you know, official uniforms. And they take the book and they make a big deal about flipping through it to make sure there's nothing, you know, uh, offensive, especially the pictures. So they're flipping through and they get to the pictures and all of a sudden the old guy looks up with a big smile on his face and he points to the picture. He goes, Ali, Ali. <laughs> and my girlfriend tells him in Chinese, yes, his friend fought Muhammad Ali two times. And the guy goes, Ali, Ali. <laughs> He's going like this, right? So that was it. They stamp it and we're, we're good wow. to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fantastic story. <laughs> That's yeah. a book in itself. I mean, that should be you. That that has to be an article in McLean's or some magazine. 
That's yeah. a wonderful story. Well, it was great. And it was, it was fantastic because, you know, everywhere that I, when I was working in China, I was there on and off for a total of almost 10 years. And I got to travel all over Asia covering events. And everywhere I went, I ran into boxing fans and, and the name of Muhammad Ali was just magic. And I was pleasantly shocked, stunned in some cases, uh, that, you know, to find Chinese and Filipino and Japanese and South Korean fans that knew all about George too. So, yeah, it's it, at the hall of fame. I saw, and, and you saw this cause you were right with them. You know, people from Australia, South Africa, um, uh, Norway would come up and say, George Chevallo. Yeah. I've yeah. known you since I, and they never met him, but you can <laughs> right. yeah. kid. Yeah. You mean yeah. so you mean the world to me. Yeah. And he was yeah. always polite, especially with kids. Oh. And he would sign the autographs there. Yeah. I mean, you saw yeah. it. They would yeah. climb on his lap and hug yeah. him. Oh yeah. 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 It was uh it, it's you have to see it to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. This, I remember going in when we went in one. I think it was for one night at the Rusty Nail Tavern there or something for a dinner. George was the last one out, last one in because he's signing an autograph, yeah, yeah. autographs. And on, on the hot Saturday, as you saw, there. I said this when I came back to people. This is Canadians have to be there to see hundreds and yeah, hundreds of right. people yeah. lining yeah. up to get his autograph and photograph. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he took time to talk to everyone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, oh, yeah, it's just, it, 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 you know, I was so lucky to spend so much time with him, uh, you know, in Canastota and, and other places. But the reaction was always the same, whether we were in Florida, New York, you know, Minnesota, L.A., Seattle. Uh, it, you know, it was just it was mind boggling how popular he was. was and yet. The same and the same thing would happen in Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Regina, but in Toronto, eh, not so much. No, it he never got his. We talked about his never life. got his due. No, he, he was treated horrifically by the local newspapers. Oh, guys like guys like Mel Donnell and and Jim Coleman. Yeah, who, who, idiots. You know, just total, total, totally moronic. And you know, in, and attacking him. Not for his ring skills, just as a person. Yeah, yeah. He exactly. doesn't do this. He doesn't that. He yeah, should this. Yeah, and yeah, that's nothing yeah. to do with boxing. What yeah, they were talking. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that, as we mentioned last night, what you know, Merv McKenzie should have actually had to fight Mike Tyson for what he did to George. <laughs> yes. Not allowing the the uh, Ali fight to be called a world title fight everywhere else on this earth. Everywhere else on the planet. Yeah. 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 Except here. And what did George say to you about that? Oh, he, 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 to, to this day, I mean, he it, it really bothered him that, you know, if he had won that fight, he would have been heavyweight champion everywhere in the world except his hometown because because Mackenzie, you know, and, and, and all the all his, you know, all his ilk on the commission were were so locked in with the WBA that they, you know, they said no we can't we can't sanction this as a world title fight and you know and it just it broke george's heart and today you know you look at the program even from that fight which is very you know a rare artifact in itself but it you know it's it's muhammad ali the people's champion versus george Chavallo, 
heavyweight showdown, you know. Yeah. That's yeah, that's unbelievable. And yeah. you know, when people would complain about Ken Hayashi, and for good reason, the boxing former Ontario yeah. Athletic Commissioner, I would say you can say what you want, but he was Einstein compared to Merv McKenzie. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know? And we mentioned the I think it was the Roy McNeely fight in Toronto where people showed up and the gardens was locked because he had an okay to printing. He forgot to okay the printing of tickets. Right. The re forgot the name referees for the fights. Yeah. Forgot yeah. forgot to have doctors yeah. there, yeah. judges. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was a terrible commissioner. And we mentioned how in Sports Illustrated he used the N word when describing mm -hmm. how he mm -hmm. started WBA contingent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so does so many other people. Oh, exactly. And you know, and it's interesting because if you go back and you look at the at the U.S. press coverage, particularly around that fight, um, and and even even newspaper guys from the U.S. Uh, from New York, Dave Anderson, one of them, one of the more vocal, really, really chastised the Toronto press, the Toronto media, and the Toronto Commission for how how the, how absurd it was that the, the way they treated George. Yeah. You know, and this these were Americans, you know, coming in from Florida and Chicago and Miami and Detroit, saying, you know, you know, what are you guys, a bunch of little tin gods, you know? I, I don't know if it was Anderson or Robert Lipsight, uh maybe and you would know better than me, but when Terrell came and he had Bernie Glickman, the mob killer, in his corner. Right. Yeah. And one of the New York writers wrote, I guess I guess I didn't go to school long enough. I guess in Canada, if you work for the mafia and you murder people, uh, they allow you in. Yeah, yeah, I think that was Lipside. Yeah. 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 He said this is a, a well known mob figure yeah. that has murdered people on the orders of Tony Accardo and yeah. Canadian customs said, Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Come on in. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the way he threatened Irv and other people and sure. Yeah. And I, I never, you won't remember, you may not remember this, but I remember what you told me. Uh, you told me when I was with you at the Hall of Fame, you said, watch the Terrell Shabato fight and count the fouls. Count yeah. how many times Ernie fouled him. Yeah. And you said to me, when you get to 100, you'll probably stop counting. And unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Thumbing, which is yeah. the oh. strangest of all the fouls. Absolutely. Yeah. Headbutting, yeah. elbowing. Yeah. yeah. Wiping yeah. the, the the laces, stepping yeah. on the foot, yeah. Yeah. yeah, over and over, and then over and over again. And Terrell had the had 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 the gall to call Ali a dirty fighter. Yeah, when yeah, the dirtiest fighter, in the and sport. not so much as one warning. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, unbelievable. And George turned to the ref and said, "He's thumbing me." <laughs> and George never complained. That's right. You That's hit right. me low, it happens. I'll hit you low yeah. back. Yeah. But you don't thumb a guy. You're taking away his career. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how how long have you known George for? When did when did you first meet George? I first met him in person on June the twelfth, nineteen eighty six, which was three days before the first DeWitt Lacusta fight in Edmonton, and George was at the time training and managing Razor Ruddock, and. Uh, Ruddock was the number two ranked contender behind Lacusta for DeWitt's or behind DeWitt for Lacusta's title. Um, so they were coming in as guests of Willie DeWitt Enterprises to you know hype the the next fight because everybody 
everybody, you know, had decided that the wit was going to was going to win. They didn't they didn't count on Kenny giving him a good fight, which he did. But uh, so I, uh, I I still remember um, they they booked the promoters had booked a room for George and, and Razor at the at the Edmonton Inn. So they were supposed to get in about nine o'clock at night. So I went out there. I, I went out to the hotel about eight o'clock and sat in the bar for a couple hours and no show, no show, no show. So finally about 1130, <laughs> you know, the, the, the lobby's almost empty and, you know, the places, the bars winding down. I think it was a Thursday night. And uh, in comes, you know, through the front door, uh, George comes through and, and, and Razor. And they got nobody else with them, and and uh, uh, they got their bags and everything. And I walked over and I introduced myself, and because uh, I talked to George a couple of days before on the phone and said that you know I'd I'd like to I'd like to sit down with him and Razor and do a real in depth thing on on Razor. And he said, oh yeah, that'd be great, great, great. So so I introduced myself and so oh, thank God he said he said I you know it's been a long day, long flight, and all they all they gave us on the plane was peanuts. So, so, so uh, it's almost midnight. So I said, well, we, you know, we still got time. We can get something to eat if you want. He said, oh, yeah, I'm starving. I'm starving. Razor wanted to go to sleep. So Razor goes up to the room. Me and George go out to a, 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 a restaurant that I knew in Edmonton that was still going to be open. Uh, we sat until 3 o'clock in the morning just talking. And uh, finally, the, the restaurant owner asked us to, to go only after George had signed menus and napkins for all for all the staff but uh, i drove them back to the hotel and made arrangements to uh to to meet them the next afternoon for lunch and the interview and uh uh when i showed up the next day uh razor was very uh standoffish that's the way uh, he is yeah 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 and uh and he to be honest he wasn't you know he wasn't he wasn't a scintillating subject to to interview that's but true. uh but George you know never drops the ball you just you know you just you just sort of ask him and then try and stay with him and uh we just hit it off right away and uh after the fight um you know it looked like it was going to be uh, Willie's first title defense was going to be against Razor it never happened but uh after the fight uh, uh George said you know we're going to stay in touch and you know, whatever's happening with Razor, I want you to be the first one to know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, after that, I mean, we talked, we used to talk, you know, we, we initially were talking two, three times a week. And then, uh, you know, subsequently, I, you know, for different assignments, I'd be in Toronto or he'd be coming out west and we'd always hook up. And, uh, uh, you know, about a year later, uh, he was no longer with Ruddock, but he was coming out to uh, Edmonton for, for a special promotion for a jewelry for a jewelry store and uh uh he said uh you know i don't know where they got me staying and i said well why don't you just you know why don't you just stay stay in my place you know my wife and my son at the time was like three so he ended up staying he was supposed to stay for two days he ended up staying for a week which was just fantastic wow. and that's when we first started you know when i first broached the subject of writing a book you know with him one day and he says, yeah, he says, you know, yeah. It's, he said, a lot of people have asked me about that. He says, I don't know. I don't know when, if, when the time's right. He said, well, we'll, we'll talk about it. And uh, so I didn't, you know, I didn't, 
didn't push him on it for for years but we always stayed close and uh in 1989 i uh I was training and, and managing Danny Stonewalker, the Canadian light heavyweight champion. Yeah. And uh, when he was, he became the first indigenous Canadian and the first Albertan to fight for a world championship when he fought Michael Moore in Pittsburgh for the WBO light heavyweight title. And so I, you know, as soon as we got that fight, I phoned George right away and said, you got to come to Pittsburgh and work the corner with me. <laughs> so, so that was great. He, he, without you know without hesitation he agreed and he came down to pittsburgh we had a great time we went up staying there for about a week after the fight and uh we got along so well in the corner that he said you know he was working with jimmy gradson and a few other fighters in toronto he said when i got fights out west for these guys this is you know we'll uh we'll, we'll be we'll be hooking up again in the corner so that was uh wow. that was great so we ended up we ended up working probably a dozen or 15, 16 fights together. And, that's a book uh, in itself. I mean, that's yeah, a fantastic yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, he was great. Yeah, You've yeah. been exceptionally close with him for a very long time. I don't know yeah. if anyone closer yeah. than you. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's to me, it's a, it's just, it's almost uh, unbelievable because he it's was, like family he was my, he was my, he was my, other than, I had two heroes, two sports heroes when I was, you know, just a, a young kid. One was Frank Mahovlich and the other was George. Two Croatians. Wow. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, I became, I, I remember distinctly when I became a Chevalo fan. It was January of 1964 when he fought Zora Foley on the Friday Night Fights. Mm -hmm. And I remember being mesmerized when Don Dunphy was doing the introduction, you know, ahead of the fight. And he was talking, you know, he was talking about this young Canadian kid, you know, Canadian champion who, uh, you know, who was, who was, you know, a throwback to Rocky Marciano and, you know, great things were expected of him. And he was still, you know, he was still pretty inexperienced at the time. And Zora Foley was, you know, one of the, one of the real slick, old savvy veterans in the, in the heavyweight division at the time. They fought in Cleveland. Uh, Foley won the 10 round decision. But I remember thinking, you know, how cool it was that this was a Canadian that I could identify with. And the crowd just went nuts over him. And, and Dumphy in his commentary said, I, I remember he said, you watch George Chevalo, he'll never take a step backwards. And that, you know, that resonated with me. And sure enough, it was, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was sort of the beginning of, of, uh, of my, uh, my, my, my hero worship of him, I guess. And then uh, to get a chance to not only meet him uh, professionally, but to, to become, you know, very close personally and, and, and do the book with him was, you know, to me, it's, uh, it's still unbelievable, you know. Is, I, I always thought, but you would know better than me, I always thought Doug Jones was his best fight because Ungerman didn't want him to fight Jones. Yeah. George said, I'm going to destroy him. That's right. Jones was ranked number four in the world at the time, and uh, you know he he uh, he lost a very close decision to to Cassius Clay at the time, um, but uh, he was he was a slick slick fighter and very popular in New York, and uh, yeah, George George knew it, and against everybody, you know, against everybody's 
you know, recommendation. He uh, he took the fight, and uh, you know, he ended up knocking out Jones in the eleventh round. And uh, it was a it, it was a it was a it was until until the Corey fight, I'd say it was his best victory. Yeah, because yeah, he, yeah. he he I don't think he carried Jones, but I think he was wanted to prove something to Ungerman. Because he kept battering Jones, and I thought, oh yeah, yeah, just knock yeah. him out already. But it was like That's a lot right. of proof to yeah. Irv that yeah. you're full yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and of course afterwards, you know, Ungerman was, you know, oh yeah, we, we knew we had it right from the start. You know, I was, <laughs> but that was Irv, you know. Yeah, and Jones was never the same again. No, no, no. My favorite no. picture of the Hall of Fame is the one of George walking to his corner, looking over his shoulder, and there was Jones. And flight falling yeah. face first yeah. to the canvas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. classic. Yeah. And and I mean the Patterson fight. Angela Dundee said, "Patterson's a former champion. He's from New York. They're not going to give it to George, even That's if right. George knocked him out. They're not gonna exactly, exactly, exactly. And you know, uh, Patterson was the guy that collapsed in his shower right after right. the fight. You know, right. Uh, and Dave Anderson from the from the New York Times is the only one who mentioned that. Uh, you know, the Toronto, Toronto media guys, oh, you know, Chevelle was in over his head, blah, blah, blah. Anderson, you go back and, and read his stories in the New York Times about that fight, you'd think it was a totally different, uh, a totally different fight that, that he was watching. And um, George said he didn't want to go fit, he wouldn't sign. Patterson wouldn't sign that's right. for the 15 round, right? That's right. And and he wanted no part of a rematch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if it goes one more round, Patterson doesn't oh. make it out. At the end of the tenth, Patterson walks to the wrong corner. <laughs> he had no idea where he was. Yeah, yeah. I asked George, "Did it bother you that Zach Clayton said Chevalier or Chevalier?" Chevalier, Chevalier. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, "To be honest, I wasn't even listening to That's him. Right. I was just looking at Floyd, thinking I'm going to destroy yeah. him." Yeah, 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 yeah. Zach, Zach had a had a talent for butchering names. <laughs> yeah, and. I mean, he beat Patterson because, as he saw, Patterson himself was never the same, collapsed and went to the hospital. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And those were body punches. Yep. Yep. Oh, nobody, no heavyweight in the 60s hit to the body like George. Nobody. No. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. No. The only one yeah. I, I could compare to George as a body puncher would be Tony Zale, the middleweight. Yeah. Yeah. That would be it. That's but no one in heavyweight. Good comparison. Yeah. Yeah. And. Yeah. You mentioned Jerry Corey. Corey said before the the Chevalier fight, "No one's ever laid me out for 10. That's right. And George just <laughs> caught him with that shot and bang. Yeah. How many, <laughs> how many times did he go down from that punch? Twice or three times? Twice. Twice. He went down, got up, went down again, and then and then when he was on his knee, and he got counted out. Uh, and of course, he went wild after that, but. Uh, uh, you know, Zach gave him every every opportunity. It was a slow count, uh, and I, you know, George had the great line afterwards. Well, you know, because Corey had said, "Well, you know, I didn't understand the count," <laughs> and, and George said, "Well, you know, if you don't understand nine from ten, then it must have been a pretty good punch." Yeah. <laughs> and, and, That's fantastic. And and Mike Corey, who was at ringside, um, he he went to George's dressing room afterwards and said, yeah, it was, yeah, there's no way Jerry was going to get up. So, yeah. It's funny because um, 
at the Hall of Fame one year, somebody was mentioning that, and Angela looked at the guy and said, Corey's <laughs> knees were on the ground when the referee said 10. That's a knockout. Yeah. End of story. Yep, exactly. It doesn't matter who you cheer for or where you're from. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. rules don't change. That's right. That's right. I, the, you know, you mentioned Mike. I, this is off topic, but I thought Bob Foster killed him when he knocked him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he didn't move for a good 10, 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. And then he, and then there was a little twitch in his foot like uh, Johansson. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, when you mentioned that, if he doesn't know 9 from 10, George, we were talking last night about George had such a great sense of humor, calling Muhammad cautious clay. And then when he first met him, his arms were so skinny. He said, no, hey, Popeye. Hey, Popeye. Yeah. Popeye. Yeah. Yeah. No, you see, he, he, he's very glib and, and very, very funny. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, while you know from, from Angelo, uh, you know, he, George was, was never, uh, never shy about, uh, about expressing, uh, you know, expressing his opinion in a, in a humorous way when it came to, to opponents. He, you know, he was never, never mean spirited, but, but, uh, you know, he he had a way of phrasing things that uh, uh, you know made it very memorable. When he fought Kelvin, Kelvin uh, can't think of his last name in Hull, Quebec, Kelvin Butler in Hull, Quebec, in I think it was '68, and uh, uh, he 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 knocked him out in three rounds. But but the the, the Canadian press reporter. Asked him afterwards, you know, you know, it looked like you were taking your time. And George said, well, you know, punching him was like, you know, punching a bowl of pudding <laughs> because, you know, he had a, he had a, a pretty thick girth, but he said, uh, you know, when, when you, when you're enjoying pudding, you want to take your time. So <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah, I, when I, I, um, I mean, he made me laugh a lot of times. Um, uh, there was a guy named Rich Richard Koletsky who has this big shrine to Ali, and I think he might have written a small something to go with it. So he said, I met George. I mean, as you know, George is at every day. He's met so many people. How can you remember the millions of people you met? Yeah, yeah. But this guy said something, and, he's, and it was in Yiddish. And George said, I look, I showed him the email. And he said, I don't remember. I said, really? I, said, I understand the Yiddish. Yeah. I just don't remember the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. So he, he told me the story once in the 50s, late 50s. I told you this last night. So my uncle, Dr. David Eisen, uh, was gave him his first physical for his first professional fight. And at his office on, I think it was Spadina or whatever. And... And the, the room was full of like 20 women, patients. And when George walked out in his underwear, he was like an Adonis. He steps on the scale and the women swooned. They all swooned. Because <laughs> they just yeah. they couldn't believe how yeah. gorgeous he was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and he was the big bright hope of all boxing. Absolutely, yeah. This was a well-spoken, educated, gorgeous mm -hmm. guy mm -hmm. that yeah. was going to change the world. Yep, yep. And... and you know, if, like he says, in retrospect, if he had, you know, if he had made the decision earlier 
to, to, to train full-time in the U.S., uh, you know, to live and train full-time, pre preferably in Florida. Uh, you know, who knows what might happen. He, you know, he ended up moving to Detroit for a couple of years. Right. And that's, that's where he first hooked up with Teddy McWhorter, who became his, 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 his go-to trainer. But, um, you know, he never, by staying in Toronto, and he did it because of his family, uh, by staying in Toronto, he sacrificed the opportunity to have real good sparring all the time. Um, and, and also to, to be in an environment where, you know, he could, he could train full time without having to deal with everything else. You know, he, as you well know, he's such a people person. He loves to have people around and, and, you know, by living and training in Toronto, he always had his friends around. He always had obligations you know, on top of the family stuff. So it was, you know, it, that took a, you know, that took a toll. And at the, at the, you know, at the peak of his career, you know, just getting ahead of the, the Ali fight, the first Ali fight right through until 71 or 72. Um, you know, he, if he had had the opportunity or if he had forced the opportunity to go south, things might have been uh, considerably different for him. Well, as you know, Charlie Goldman loved him. Yeah. And Goldman trained Marciano and Marty yeah. Servo. And he was the one in New York who said, you're throwing your punches out the window, yeah. shorten them up, throw them from yeah. the hip. Yeah. And he, he wanted to train them. But, yeah. but, you know, I mean, George also said, this was in your book, that, uh, it, you know, he never got the chance to go a four or six or eight rounds. He was fighting 15 rounds. Oh, yeah. He never got through the learning. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Never fought. Never fought prelims. Never fought undercard. No, always the main event. Yeah. 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 I mean, what is, I think it was his fifth fight they threw him with Howard King. You know, Howard King was, you know, a year before that, had been ranked number five in the world. <laughs> so, you know, he never had the chance to, to develop slowly. And a lot of it was because, uh, you know, he, he, at the time he was involved with, uh, uh, you know, a couple of different managers that were getting on in years and wanted to cash in as, as quickly as they could. So, yeah. Same thing happened with Art Hafey with Suey Wells. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Art was calmly, he was in tears because George had been out in Halifax and he recognized Art. Yeah. And it yeah. made Art's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that yeah. the big man recognized him. Yeah. And yeah. like you said, you know, Art, because of the, I mean, Don Shargan, who you knew, the promoter mm -hmm. said, you know, Art's only problem was that he was white and he was good and he didn't have a criminal record. I mean, yeah, said, yeah. Same with Shivalo. He was white, yeah. he was good, yeah. but yeah. he wasn't, he wasn't bad mouthing people or doing That's bad. That's right. Yeah, yeah. In the boxing that almost counts against you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And in, and in, in Art's case, I mean, he, you know, he, he was, he was the number one contender for four years. He was the most popular fighter in Los Angeles, you know, ahead of guys like Bobby Chacon and, and Bazooka Limon and, but, but never got his, never got his shot. No, that's one of, that's one of the real tragedies of Canadian boxing, I think is, is, is the way that, that uh, he was treated. Well, he, he knocked out Ruben Oliveras. Yeah, yeah. And in the second fight, I 
when I was at the Hall of Fame in 2014 or 2013, I walked up to Richard Steele and I said to him, I wanted you to know that I personally didn't vote for you, even though we got in. He said, why? Because you cheated Art Hafey. <laughs> he said, I said, in the second fight with Oliveris, you know, one guy had it 8-6-1 Hafey, the other guy had it 8-6-1 Oliveris. You had it 14 to 1 Oliveris. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And he said, well, that, that I, I may have been off. You cheated. Yeah. You either were paid off, yeah. but you did it deliberately. Yeah. deliberately. And that counts against you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and yeah. people don't know that when he fought Danny Little Red Lopez, Art had Thompson's disease. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Neurological yeah. disease, yeah. which throws his body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't bend. Yeah. Couldn't move. Yeah. And he, my father would take me down to Buffalo to visit his cousins who we hadn't seen in 30 years just so we could watch Art Hafey fight. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and he was rated by ring above David Cote. He was rated above yeah. the world champion. That's right, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the all-time greats. People should know him. I know Nicky Fernlano knows him mm -hmm. and other, but I, I it, it just, same as you. I mean, you know, it just, just kills me that people don't know how great our age was. Yeah, and yeah. I submitted him for an order of Canada and they just said, who is he? And I said, oh, yeah. you gotta be kidding. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we had, we had uh, he doesn't need fundraisers, but I wanted to do a testimonial to him in Halifax and Peter McKay wouldn't. Really? Wouldn't, wouldn't allow it, the McKay family wouldn't allow it because when Art came back from San Diego, uh, a friend said, can you, appear at a political rally and he said i'm i'm apolitical i know nothing about politics yes. i support no one i have nothing to do with it i don't care so he just appeared he didn't speak he wa literally walked in waved walked out right a liberal candidate and and they held it the against him. Oh, geez, yeah. and a friend of mine for the globe whom you know tabitha sui wrote an article about that they said mm -hmm. this is preposterous yeah he didn't yeah. even know the guy Jeez. and they still held it against him yeah yeah um, how have you been in touch with George's family recently? Yeah, I, I, I communicate with uh, his son, Mitch, mm -hmm. uh, a few times each year. And, uh, he, you know, uh, Mitch is a great guy. And, and uh, um, you know, he, like he said, I mean, you know, the sad thing about dementia is that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Rob George of, you know the any memories of you know basically who he is and what he accomplished but uh the silver lining to that is is also uh taking away the horrific memories of you know what's happened to his family yeah. but but uh he's in a you know he's 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 very well cared for and he's in a facility where where uh they just adore him and uh he's you know he's 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 comfortable uh he's happy and it's uh you know, it is what it is. I, I was told a story, I think Mitch told me this, where before he went in there, he was driving his car, you probably heard this, uh, somewhere near near London, Ontario, or Hamilton, but he parked in the side of the road, he was wandering, and a yeah. police officer stopped, and he and George said, am I in trouble? And I'm going to be arrested. He said, Mr. Chevallo, I just want to help you. Do you know where you are? No, yeah. I don't know where I am. Yeah. You know where you're going? No. Yeah. Okay. 
So he got his son and Mitch took care of it and they brought the car yeah. back. But this 25-year-old police officer just said, that's yeah. not yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. I can't I can't allow this, I can't allow him to be hurt. Right. Yeah. You know, and this yeah. outpouring of love. I mean, he should have his own stamp. He should have George Shabalo oh. Day here. Absolutely. And I mean, he's when I was a kid. I didn't believe in Superman. And then I grew up and found out George was Superman. <laughs> and Randy Roberts, I mentioned this to Randy Roberts, which he loved. I, I had a conversation with George. This goes back to the set of Cinderella Man in 204. And so we're talking about, and I said, it's incredible that you called him Ali after his name got changed. He said, you're allowed to change your name. <laughs> and I said, and also you supported his stand against the war. And George said to me, well, the Vietnam War is based on the obsolete domino theory that, and Randy just shook his head yeah, yeah, yeah. and said that if yeah, one Asian yeah. nation falls to communism, they all will. Right, he right. said that wasn't true. And we knew it wasn't true before the war. Yeah. And Randy said, that's incredible. He said, there aren't many historians or politicians who would understand the domino theory. That's right, theory. exactly. The yeah. prize fighter from Canada yeah. understood it perfectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a smart, educated guy. Oh, you know, and that's, you know, that's one of the things I love about him is, you know, George could talk, you know, intelligently and... and, and on anything. On, yeah, on, you know, on a, so, many so many topics on so many levels, whether it was religion, literature, uh, history, uh, you know, pop culture. Uh, and it was all... You know, he, he wasn't he wasn't just spitting out stuff to 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 hear his own voice. What he had to say was was you know gold. I have to tell you, in your book on him, I was at the book signing at Chapters on the I think it was on the Danforth, right? And so it was packed. Yeah. And a friend of mine came, and his daughter was four or five, and she didn't know who George was, but she crawled right on his lap and hugged him. Yeah. And anyways, so I got the book and he wrote, P.S. I know you miss Angelo because Angelo just died. Yeah. And I know what he means to you. And yeah. I read that and I just started to cry. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. was a man who went through everything, but he was more concerned yeah. with what I was yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way he is. You and know, I had in 20, 2009, <clears throat> I, uh, I had a medical episode where I, I collapsed and uh, ended up in the ICU with uh, a blood sugar uh, count of 48. So, so they put me on an, uh, an insulin pump for 20 hours and uh, I was actually in a diabetic coma. Um, but uh, when I came to, and they moved me to, my, to a, a private room uh, a nurse came in the next day and she had a stack of uh, phone messages, you know, and she said, uh, George Chevallo has been phoning for you. <laughs> I wow. said, she said, uh, she said, from, from the day you were, you were brought in uh, right up until yesterday, he's, he's, he's phoned every day to check on you. And he wants to know, you know, he wants us to let us know when you'll be ready to talk. And I thought, you know, <laughs> that's George. And yeah. uh, sure enough, he, you know, because my wife had called him 
when I first went to the hospital. And uh, he was, yeah, every day he was checking up on me, uh, you know, from 2,000 miles away. Wow. And I was, you know, that's just the kind of guy he is. You're a family and, member. He's got to. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and you know, for years and years and years, uh, he would phone uh, my son on his birthday, uh, on, on my son Dan's birthday. Uh, George would phone, you know, from the time he was six years old right up until he was, you know, 22. You know? <laughs> and it didn't matter where he was in the world. He'd, you know, he'd, he'd call me from Thailand, from India, from Italy, from South Africa, you know, just to, just to, to make sure everything was okay. You know? can, can you speak a bit too? I, I know the fact that his best friend, and he loved Ali, but he loved Joe Frazier. I mean, they were yes. exceptionally close. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he told me that Frazier, I think you told me, Frazier called him every week. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they just, they loved each other. Yeah, yeah. And Joe, uh, you know, Joe wasn't a guy who, uh, you know, Joe was very, 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 very close with his own, with his own family and, uh, you know, loved his fans, but wasn't known for being particularly friendly with opponents, you know, former opponents. But... Uh, he and George had a had a very very strong friendship, and uh, uh, he would he would check in, you know George would call him or Joe would call George, yeah, a couple of times a month, uh, and Marvis Fraser as well. I've got to be you know got to be real close with George, and uh, when uh, when Joe died, uh, George was George was uh, really took really took it hard. Uh, because they they were very close, yeah, and you know, considering considering the you know the the damage that that, that Joe caused, you know, with that left hook that, yeah. that uh, basically knocked George's eyeball out. Um, oh, his orbital ball. Yeah, yeah. And didn't but, Frazier's mother hit him after the fight? Yeah, because yeah. I thought he was your friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But he visited George in the hospital. That's every right. Day. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I I think you mentioned in your book how. George was out west giving a seminar, anti-drug seminar, and then he got the news and he called Joe and said, "Hang on, just hang on one more night. I'm begging you." Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. Made, got there the next day, but it wasn't. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. And I know he, he took the death of Ali very hard too. Very hard. Yeah. 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 Well, they shared something. I mean, those men shared an era and a time that'll never exist again. Which exactly. Is to my last question, will we ever, it's a stupid question, will we ever see another George Chevallo anywhere no. in the world? No, 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 you know, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, you know, you're never going to see 15 round fights again. Right. And, and like George is, you know, fond of, fond of saying that, you know, he was, he was the last survivor of the 15 round club because, you know, that, that was real fighting. That was real boxing. Um, you're never going to see that again, but you'll never see, you'll never see the combination of strength, durability, and just relentless aggression that, that, that he brought. I don't yeah. think, I don't think that, you know, and, and that, that's something that's, that, that, that's from inside. You can't teach that. And, uh, you know, we were lucky enough, we were lucky enough in Canada and the world to see it uh, through his through his career, and you know, it, it just uh, it just uh, uh, really resonates with me personally because 
like I said, I, you know, I, I became a fan when I was six, seven years old. And, you know, here I am 60 years later and I still worship the guy. So. Me too. And I, ha I have to tell you, I mean, you know, because you've been all over the world. When they find out you're from Canada, do you know George Shabalo? Yeah. You're the only guy that can say, yeah, actually, <laughs> he's my brother. I do know him very well. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know when we were there at the Hall of Fame, I paged you. I don't think you got the page. There was a person there from the States, and he said, you Canadians always say that Shabalo never got knocked down. But Bonavita knocked him down. I said, Bonavita never knocked him down. That's right. He stepped on his foot, and he pushed him. And yeah. George never went down. He tripped right. backwards, but he never hit the canvas. That's right. That's right. So yeah. I said, and I said, and I'm going to prove it to you now. <laughs> seeing that, Paul Murray, who knows him, and George, and they're going to come over and they're going to tell you, you don't have to apologize. And and I don't think you got the page, but it, it, it you know, that yeah. I mean, Bonav he beat Bonavina, but Bonavina oh, was an exceptionally yeah. dirty fighter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that was. You know, in, in Boxing Illustrated, that you know it was a it was a front cover story by Leo Lipset, and uh, that was the headline: Chevalo won the fight, Bonavino got the decision. Bonavino, Patterson, yeah. and yeah. Terrell. Yeah. yeah, and it's like Angelo instead of Cinderella Man in two hundred four, someone said to him, uh, "What was it like when the mob used to run boxing?" And he said, "What do you mean used to?" Yeah, yeah. He said they've run it since the 1700s. They still run it today, mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. always will. And you can't yeah. get rid of them. That's right. You know. That's right. You said I asked George, "Do you regret not hooking up with a mob guy?" He said, "If I were hooked up with a mob guy, I may have got, I may have won the title, that because I would have had the muscle, but yeah. I never would have had any money." Yeah, exactly. They would have yeah. stolen everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. Murray, I, I just want to thank you so much. It's been the privilege and pleasure oh. of, of my year and my life to have you on. <laughs> my it's pleasure entirely. Um, where can we get your books? Going the distance, you can still get on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And same with the wonderful George Chevallo book. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They're all they're all still out there. Uh, uh, you might have to do a little digging on Amazon or or eBay, but uh, they're all still there. Yeah. Well, I have to say that Yvonne Michel, the promoter in Montreal, and all boxing promoters in Canada owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude, and I think a lot of money, because you've kept the sport alive. You single-handedly kept boxing as a viable sport in Canada. You're the one that did it. No one else. You did that. Well, I appreciate that, Lou. Thanks very much. And I look forward to the book on McCarty and Pelkey. Absolutely. And. Well, uh, Pale Imitation, the short, stormy history of the Worldwide Heavyweight Championship. I can't wait. When is that coming out? Uh, 2025. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to take care of myself so I can be alive then oh, and get it and read it. The story is fantastic, but it'll be more fantastic when, when you write it or when we read what you've written. Thanks Thank you much. so much uh, to our guest, Murray Gregg. And please, folks, please, I beg of you. Go online and get the book of George Chevallo. This is one. This is the best boxing biography I've ever read, and I have over two thousand of them here in my apartment, driving my wife nuts. And and go in the distance if you want to know the history of Canadian boxing. Every great boxer and every boxer going back several hundred years. This is the book you want to get. Murray Gregg is the premier boxing writer 
female sports writer ever produced by this country and one of the best in the world, a world champion in his own right. We thank you for watching our show, Ring Talk, and we will see you again next Sunday. Be well. Thanks, Lou. Thank you, Marie. You be well. You too.